One of the more nebulous things that we talk about when trying to define the ideal place to live or invest in is lifestyle. What does it mean when we refer to a suburb that's having great lifestyle benefits? And what is great for one person or demographic isn't necessarily going to be universal. So is there a hierarchy of lifestyle and amenity that avid investors need to learn about before buying a property? How can we go about the task of ranking locations? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxdale's Location Location. Location Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? TheElephantInTheRoom.com.au We live in a world where there is an abundance of data and this creates exciting opportunities for those who know how to turn it into something meaningful. Our guest today is a leading voice in the evolving professions of placemaking and place measurement. Kylie Legg is the founder and CEO of placemaking consultancy Place Partners and innovative data insights company Place Score. Her passion lies in the relationship between people and their urban environments and how we can work better collaboratively to create the kinds of places that make people happier and healthier. And what's interesting us is how that data can help property buyers find the perfect neighbourhood and also how it's being used by governments and the property sector to make better cities. So welcome, Kylie. We'd love to dig into this whole topic. Thanks, Veronica. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kylie. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely love this type of conversation. I think it's so important for buyers to to think about very deeply when they're when they're making property decisions. I mean, I really like the idea of the community building the community. Is is that sort of where your sort of heart and the, the passion behind your current business sort of comes from? Um, yeah, I mean, my mission is to make kind of every environment better for the people who live there. And so by empowering people, whether or not that's through creating a data set like we're doing with Place Score that will inform the private sector as well as the public sector about what's really important to a particular community or through more traditional placemaking, which is about empowering people to actually make the place that they want. Like, So that might be um, from everything from like a community garden, but it could be a walking school bus or it could be about a local festival on your main street. Um, so that's really about sort of collaborative change versus kind of advocacy and um, uh, measuring kind of uh, the impacts on communities that we work with governments around. And so, I mean, on a community level, councils like very well entrenched on thinking about these things or is it sort of a real mixed bag across the country where some councils are really investing in engaging the community and, and people like yourself to, to make wise decisions and some councils are really stuck in the old ways, I guess? Yeah, I think it's the same with anywhere. I mean, one thing I do want to say is that like local government particularly going, I haven't met anyone in local government who doesn't really care about the community. Yeah. But it is really, really hard. Like I think it's probably one of the hardest jobs is to manage not only the physical aspects but also the sort of social, economic and cultural aspects of a place, often with quite restricted resources mm. um, that's, you know, if you imagine just how hard it is to manage your own backyard and to like <laughs> extrapolate that out for a community of 100,000 or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I think going, you know, the idea of place-based and community-based de- developments pretty established. 
Um, but it's really only been in the last 15 years that we've seen this really big uptake of placemaking and in the last really only three to five years that we've seen place-based data and community insights being integrated um, more structurally or strategically across government organisations, which I think is good. That's what we're obviously aiming for is to get them really valuable data direct from the community um, versus kind of counting things. There's lots of data that counts stuff. Like it doesn't necessarily tell you what people are feeling though. Yeah. Can you define placemaking for us? Yes, I can. <laughs> Luckily, that's my job. Um, so, yeah, basically we well, we define it as the collaborative process of creating, maintaining um, or enhancing places to make them better connect with their community. Mm. So it's a kind of, it's an active process um, where the more hands, the more people involved in it, the more successful you're likely to be. Now, I imagine that, you know, like we, we don't talk well, – Often we talk about the Australian property market or Sydney property market. Um, in a similar way, it's it's a bit incorrect to describe us as Australian as one type of person or even within a local community or even within a suburb as being one single type of person. I mean, I always amazed at how demographers seem to develop these avatars. How, how do you go about making sure that these communities are diverse because you know what's what's great in one area won't apply in another will it well and also not all communities are diverse so mm. you know there are communities that are relatively homogenous and then there are communities that yeah. are more diverse or they could be from non-english speaking backgrounds but also not diverse yes like going, yep. so um i think and i think that's the important layer that um, more social research versus demographic data can kind of unlock mm. because i think you know, historically, one of the big things is around playgrounds. So we used mm. to look at the census data and go, oh, there's a whole lot of young families moving in. We need playgrounds. And mm. they would be, you know, a slippery dip and a, a yep. seesaw and <laughs> probably all the things that are completely illegal now, apparently, going <laughs> as well. So we would do that and we'd go, oh, that's a good fit because it fits the numbers. Yep. But with the community um, changing and people's values changing, that lots of people with relatively young children are still quite happy to go out for dinner. Mm. Um, and you know <laughs> that they want somewhere safe that you know if they can just sit on a Friday evening and relax for 15 minutes and have a good meal they don't want their children to be hit by a car and they don't want to be also tying them up to the table right because <laughs> that's only going to last yeah. for a few minutes yeah. so what we've sort of seen is quite innovative local economies looking at values versus just demographics to mm. sort of unlock a better relationship between communities and like local town centres of saying well in order to meet this need of going out at night time for these people with young children, we need to create safe, walkable places that are separated from private vehicles. Make me laugh about 15 minutes. That's about as long as my wife and I and the kids last at dinner. We like, before we're like, what were we thinking going out for dinner? Um, but, I mean, as the cities get denser, um, do you think that's when where the opportunity lies is to you know, densify and make out all our suburbs and all our main streets and all our communities better rather than just going wider and, you know, further into the farmland or higher and higher in certain pockets? Yeah, I mean, the, the big, there's a sort of an ecological question of saying how much more land can we cover with hard surfaces, which mm. I'm kind of like, well, we definitely want to keep that to a minimum because we're mm. seeing the impact of that. Yeah. 
certainly across the eastern seaboard over the last six months. Um, the other thing is this sort of like, you know, I think that many people say sort of think density is like this dirty word and kind of that it's like saying, so I, I tend to say going like what humans tend to want is a cluster of amenity and opportunities for social connection. And so it's about being able to make sure that proximate to your home, unless you are the relatively small percentage of people who really want to live on the top of a mountain by yourself, that most people want to be able to have choices around how they connect physically and socially. Um, and, you know, I think going the last two years as well has shown which neighbourhoods work and have become more resilient mm. and more connected and which ones perhaps have really struggled because they haven't been proximate to amenity, they haven't been proximate to like, close by to things where people can connect. Like in my neighbourhood I've got one tiny pocket park, one sort of medium dog park and one very large park all within um, uh, 10 minutes walk of me so I'm incredibly fortunate and that meant that even though I live alone, I would see people at least twice a day and get the nod. Mm. And that actually meant quite a lot, you know, like, mm. you know, of being that connection. And, and, you know, if you saw the same people, it would be the double nod, right? That, <laughs> and that's actually really important for building, you know, that feel that sense of belonging and that going if something went wrong, like you start seeing your neighbours and stuff and you're more likely to ask for help, etc. Um, so that, uh, the other part of it that is called social infrastructure. So a footpath is social infrastructure. It doesn't mm. have to be a library. Um, and there's lots and lots of evidence globally that places with higher social infrastructure, these sort of things, parks, paths, certainly libraries, etc., cetera, um, are more resilient in the face of quite dramatic mm. um, emergency environments. So in the Chicago heat waves, it was the areas that had footpaths where they had the least, the lowest death rates. It was it was quite a terrible time mm. because people had seen each other and they knew the person had broken their leg and they were in their house. And oh gosh, has anyone checked on that guy down on number thirty two? Um, even if they didn't know his name, they knew that there was a human there, and they actually went out and found them and and provided them, you know, basically a, a safe place to go to. I mean, how are, how are you finding? Um, there's always a cohort in every suburb that uh, the NIMBY slash. Uh, pro, we want to go back to like it was when I moved here 40 years ago or worst case, we just keep it like it is today. Um, how do you, is, is this sort of research and what you do about sort of balancing their argument? Because they're usually the ones who are trying to dominate the conversation to keep things like they are and the people who are just sort of, you know, being a bit less outspoken, a sort of, you know, the, the bigger cohort in the community that's not getting heard. Is that sort of one of the things that you skip the sales tip the scales back in favour of really what the community wants? Yeah, that I mean, look, it's pretty much underpinning kind of the whole of the play score kind of methodology is to say, okay, well, what's common good? Yeah. Um, and how do we also deal with equity when there's different voices who aren't heard? Um, mm. And so, you know, we've got a situation where in traditional engagement we've had generally a relatively Anglo-Saxon, relatively older, relatively educated, um, yep. a lot of confidence, a lot of capacity to participate um, kind of participating and being very vocal because they do feel confident um, and that many of the decision makers look very similar to that. And so we've got a kind of a double bias where it's like, oh, mm. well, but that's what everyone wants. Well, that's what you're hearing over and over and over again. Yeah. And so by sort of unlocking uh, all of the different voices and making them truly transparent and, you know, uh, equal, I can kind of go, well, actually that's not quite 
same. So a really good example is uh, cars, infrastructure and parking. Yeah. Um, which at a local government is by far one of the biggest areas of contention. Um, there is continuous complaints about it and that there's not enough fundamentally. Yet um, walking, cycling and jogging paths that connect housing to communal amenity like the shops is the number three care factor across the whole country. Um, so we had uh, 30,000 records across Australia last year um, and car accessibility and parking is number 34. Mm. Now that's, re- um, that's a representative sample across the country of saying what's most important to us in our ideal neighbourhood yet we spent all of this money on the infrastructure supporting private vehicles, um, which is annoying when it doesn't work, but does it actually make your life better? Mm. Well, actually, I think most people would say it would be more lovely to go on the weekend and walk with the kids down to get a baby Chino than it would be to pack us all into the car and get down there and get in the car park and in and out. Like one is a beautiful, pleasant thing and one is probably full of lots of angst and crying and it's sort of interesting actually that you raise that as an example because i guess what's going through my mind when you're you're giving that illustration is that if you're more angsty and annoyed whilst driving your car trying to find a car space it's probably more likely to agitate you than the you know than being agitated about not being able to walk to the shops you know so i guess I guess what you're saying, the squeaky wheel is getting the oil, but the squeaky wheel isn't necessarily representative of what mm. we value. No, and we've made that quite clear. Like, I mean, was, and it's not us. Like, we just are completely transparent. Yep. Like, this mm. is what we've been told. And we went through multiple different channels to get that to ensure that we got a really good sample from across the country, from every socioeconomic group and gender diversity and cultural background. Um, and there is differences between different groups and there's differences mm. between different geographies. Like we know that those people who have no modal choice, like there is no public transport and mm. there is no pathways, that the car becomes an incredibly important mm. part of your life. And that's actually going, we either need to stop planning those kinds of places where people are dependent or we need to make sure there's enough room for those people who really need a car to be able to use it and all the rest of us who can walk or catch public transport, at least for some of our journeys, kind of start having more choices and enjoying that choice. So you said number three was that, you know, the pathways and and walkability effectively. What's number one and number two? Elements of the natural environment um, as a point of uniqueness in your your neighbourhood. So like feature trees or views or the integration of topography. So about making, um, using nature or allowing nature to make our place unique, mm-hmm. um, which is super interesting because I was just started reading a really fabulous book this morning um, with Alison Page, who's um, an Indigenous woman around designing with country. And it was one of the things that she kind of differentiates of saying designing on country and with country versus kind of against it and in mm-hmm. a lot of... Mm-hmm traditional western design has been like tabula rasa let's clear everything and then we'll design this delightful park in the middle of it even if that's not where the water wants to go or that's not where the trees want to grow um (laughs) so so yeah so the humans arguments are saying uh, by far uh that's the thing that they most value um and then the other is about (laughs) excuse me the care of that uh, public space and uh, those shared spaces Mm. So it's not enough 
have um, have it, we want to look after it. And do you think of that? I mean, I mean, taking care of it. I mean, that's not so solely down to the council, right? That that has to come from the the community that wants that loves and respects their place. And I mean, good humans, I guess. Um, but then also, you know, don't litter and, and and take and pick up rubbish when they do. Or you know, I guess you know, inform the council of issues that they may see in the community and things like that. So, do you think yeah. that that it's like a self-fulfilling thing if you, if you create the environment and then you get people to respect it and love it and take care of it and then keeps on spinning the wheel? A hundred percent. So, so one of the, I mean, one half of the research we do is around what to, what's most important to people in their ideal neighbourhoods and the other is how is the neighbourhood performing for them and what are the things that are contributing positively or negatively. And so on the, the, the performance side, what, uh, well, I guess, I guess underneath it, both of them is this idea of place attraction, what's actually uh, kind of acting as a magnet for people mm. to want to go to one place versus another. Um, so some of your stuff I'm sure you were talking about like, oh, well, it might be the cost. And I've always mm. been like, oh, cost is like the worst way to choose a neighbourhood, right? Like it's like going to like then you've all you've got in common with your friends there, et cetera, are going to yeah. be uh, that this is what you can afford. <laughs> um but if you align it with what you what matters to you, then you're going to have a lot more shared values, regardless of what your background is. So that's one part of it, the attraction. And then the second is uh, is um, attachment. It's about building place loyalty. Mm. And what again, there's some really great research. Um, this again out of the states, although we are now doing it here too, of saying that the higher the levels of place attachment the higher the levels of, of resilience, mm. economic and social resilience, um, but also GDP growth um, and kind of population growth. So people are attracted to places that people feel connected to. So um, the, the, those neighbourhoods uh, that really thrived during the lockdowns had high place mm. attachment. Um, mm. They were the places where you could see on the local socials of saying, okay, I'm really without a job and, you know, I'm thinking about baking banana bread and there's 20 orders for banana bread within an hour of people paying 20 bucks for banana bread um, of saying, okay, you know, well, can someone come and take my dog for a walk because I'm locked down for two weeks or, and, you yeah. know, and that the people that were, you know, supporting the local businesses and doing food ordering and, you know, like they were like this rich and I fortunately lived in one and because I've done this work, I'm actually kind of a weird community stalker so I've got all these friends in different community <laughs> groups so across the country um, and so I could see how different communities were yeah, behaving yeah. Um, and some really thrived and some got really frightened and got very introverted and um, and that's what you're saying Chris I think about the mm. you know not in my backyard or people getting frightened of change um, when you are in that position of and it is frightening, you can do two things, right? You go out with fight or flight and you can go mm. out and kind of fight for what matters for you and then be part of the changing it and take a bit of control that way or you can kind of retreat a bit and just want to hold on like so tight going, please, you know, I can't cope with anything else. And so if a community is really resilient, I mean resistant, sorry, to change, um, then I'd be looking at, well, what are they worried about? Like what under, what's underpinning that, like that they're frightened they're going to lose? Well, I think... Um, it's interesting. There you go, yeah. Well, yeah, this is all very interesting, you know, conceptually. Um, I wonder, it, look, I, and it sounds fairly mercenary me even saying this, but I would imagine if people feel that there's a lot of resilience, as in place 
so I forgot your term, you said the place loyalty, that they are less likely to want to move and less likely to put their property on the market and sell, or if they're tenants, less likely to move. Yep. Um, from a rental point of view, it could get the rents down because there's less trans- there's less transacting, you know, less less um, less turnover. Um, from a property prices point of view, potentially could lead to prices increasing because there's yep. less turnover. So, um, and it'd be interesting to see if there's been any any work done on that to to look yeah. into the impacts on property prices and because it. it like in a in an anecdotal sense, certainly the way I see the, the property market operating, those areas that are in high demand, there's great community that people want to live to, they aspire to live to. People are reluctant to leave, so therefore there's less tra- there's less properties on yep. the market. And when people do sell, there's lots of people that want to live there, so the competition is higher for the sort of property. Yep. So. Um, I know this is not as warm and fuzzy and nice feeling to say there's this lovely community. It really sort of trades it for dollars, but uh, but it, it, it it's sort of an economic reality, isn't it? Um, well, definitely. And look, going in Australia, going your home, unfortunately, is your biggest asset. Um, and so, of course, you know, it is important to be thinking about that investment, um, yeah. both in a short and a long term. Um, I can remember years ago, I, because I had purchased quite early when I was quite young, a little one bedroom, not completely nasty place in the King's Cross before it got cool. Um, <laughs> and um, I remember my father was a builder came in and went, you are joking. <laughs> like it was terrible. Um, uh, but kind of when people were saying, well, where should we buy? And I said, anywhere within 800 metres of a train station in Sydney, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where. And now you look at what's happened and going pretty much anywhere within 800 metres of train station has probably tripled quadrupled in price in the last 20 years um, because that kind of amenity can't, isn't ever going to be reproduced. Like, I mean, they're slowly starting to build new metro and things mm. like that, but um, in many cases they're quite close to existing infrastructure except for out in the, the newer suburbs. Uh, I think I've forgotten the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... I, I <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> so, I mean, as I, I've seen... Um, I'm up on the beaches and, I, I mean, when you were talking a story about communities and things like that, I think it was a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um you know, when, when we were locked down over Christmas and the rest of Sydney weren't locked down, everyone was like, build a bridge, cut the, you know, it's finally we're our own little, you know, country. And it's a re- but you guys started the, that. the Republic of... Um, <laughs> the Insula Peninsula. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, and it was like almost that it was us versus them and, you know, et cetera. And yes. I, I think it's it's a real mixed bag up here, to be honest. I think you've got a lot of people who are, yeah. you know, stuck in the old way. And then, but on, on the ground, you can see the council really trying to, to make the communities better, I guess. Um and so what are some of the things that, you know, I guess the best bang for buck? You mentioned footpaths. You mentioned, um, you know, maybe getting rid of car parking and making streets more around, like, outside dining. I've, I've seen there's a real big trend across, you know, lots of parts of Sydney where it's putting the power back to the people. So what, yeah. what are sort of some of the things you think the councils should be doing that they're not? Oh, gosh, you know they're my clients, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is your pitch Um, look it is actually going i mean the thing they should be doing is actually doing good research and knowing what the problem is that they're trying to solve yeah yeah so in fact kind of like you know the there's some wonderful examples of pop-up dining which works really well in the city of sydney you know we've got incredibly clustered amenity and a huge amount of people that serve that whether or not they're coming into the city for the day or people that actually live there but that's completely different from Oh, I'm trying to think of kind of like French's Forest. Yeah. Mm. If you want to be out uh, in that, in that your way. Or Picton, 
So each of those communities have very different needs mm. um, and their current environment is very different. So kind of what we're trying to do is understand how that current place is performing, what is that this community wants, and then looking at what the mis mismatch is. So what's actually things that are highly valued and performing well, like, okay, that's great, let's keep those highly high performing and um, and and also sorry low performing and highly valued and that's where we've got a priority um, and so for some communities um, and we've certainly done work in the northern beaches for instance where it has been about um, the programs that we've developed around more active daytime surveillance and cleaning of um, urban centres where you've got yeah. a big turnover of day trippers as well as the current population. And so that was a program that we could reveal through the data was different for Manly than it was in Avalon, yeah. for instance. Mm. Um, and then in other places it was about greening and so and that became a priority. And then another place... And I'm just thinking about centres across there um, was about, yes, about outdoor dining and, you know, about remanaging public domain because the roads are public space and the footpaths are public space. And, you know, um, about 80% of the city's public space is roads. Um, and if we, whether or not really? you, yeah, whether or not you drive a car or not, that's where a lot of your money is going to maintaining those and, you know, considering everyone under 15 doesn't drive and an increasing proportion of people don't drive. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, totally is. With with lockdowns, you know, I guess that's something that caused people to pay more attention to their local amenity. I mean, A, you couldn't go, well, most of us couldn't go anywhere to work. And depending on where you were locked in, you know, if you're in Victoria, for instance, you're, you're, your zone was very tight and your ability to get out and about. And, you know, anecdotally I heard from a lot of people saying, God, I'm so glad I live close to the coast or I'm so glad I live close to a park. Uh, and if you didn't, you really you really noticed. So we, I'm so glad, so, uh, so glad I live within walking distance of cafes or yep. whatever. I'd get my takeaway and just see people wave and whatever. Um, and I, I think that that and also the dissatisfaction people would have had within their own space if their home wasn't um, large enough or suitable for working from home is one of the causes for sort of the big boom, property boom we had last year, that, that dissatisfaction coming out of lockdown said, bugger this, I'm not, I'm not facing another one of these, I'm going to change. Mm. Have you seen evidence of that changing the way councils are or the way that some of these communities have actually even self self spontaneously themselves actually implemented things that have made their places more livable or made their locations more livable? Um, I mean, there's, there are lots of examples of, of quite innovative things both happening both from the community um, and the private uh, and the public sector. But I think what we can show the most clearly is that what COVID did was change what mattered. Mm. So when we started, we started collecting data as soon as I put the team into, I sent them home in March in 2020 going, okay, like, let's be prepared for this. Um, and so we started a national data collection from that point to see what was going to happen. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. Mm. Um, and so during the first year, um, what we were seeing was like 40% spikes uh, in the amount of people that were selecting certain attributes as important to them compared to the previous year. Um, mm. And then by the time we got to the livability census where we actually collected the data mid-2021, but it was during the period where the whole country was um, not in lockdown. Yep. So we saw a bit more of a stabilisation. But from 2019 to 2021, 
um, some of the big kind of movers were 14% more people said that elements of the natural environment were important. Um, mm. 5% more said local businesses that provide for daily needs. Um, 9% more said those walking and jogging paths that connect housing to amenity. And what dropped were things like ease of driving and parking was 7% less. Um, <clears throat> and what we were most surprised of, I thought at the beginning that the, the performance of neighbourhoods would plummet. I was like, but what we found is that stayed relatively um, stable, if not slightly increasing by one or two points. But what we saw that was that people were discovering their neighbourhoods um, that Australia actually has, you know, would really have very high levels of livability yeah. for the majority of the people. What's unfair mm. is the disparity, I think, between the majority and, and a small minority who are really not being provided kind of with that amenity. Um, so I think going while well, some things did go down because we're measuring 50 different aspects of neighbourhoods, um, other things went up. They really actually discovered their parks mm. and their pathways mm. and their neighbours and the sense of belonging. So where if you were leaving it, you know, for work at 7 o'clock every morning and not getting home till 7 and then doing family things, you weren't really making friends with your neighbours, right? Yeah. Like, so um, all of those things would have improved over that period of time. So that shift, um, we'll be doing the next census next year. We'll see if, whether or not that stayed. Um, and then I think going, that's going to provide more evidence um, for the government to feel more and more confident um, in doing long-term planning changes, which we're already seeing. Like There was a big conference about greening the city two weeks ago. There's huge event, um, investments in canopy increases um, to for heat island effect, but also just for making neighbourhoods more kind of livable, Mm. Um, there's big changes around modal transportation, transport for New South Wales has just integrated active transport into its main organisation. So wow. now it looks at all modes, whereas walking wasn't in transport before. Um, <laughs> so kind of like you're seeing quite significant shifts um, everywhere around this this sort of thinking. God, do you sort of like think about it a little bit like, I guess, the gross happiness index in like Bhutan, I guess like where... It's all about measuring the feeling and the livability and how connected people are and how happy people are. Happiness is a funny word. But, you know, I guess when you're talking about councils should be measuring that and the stickiness and the attraction and the, um, I forget the other word, not, uh, the attachment. attachment, yeah, how, how that's the things they should be measuring and, and sort of trying to increase on an annual basis, I guess, rather than, you know, how many new businesses are opening up or what's unemployment or crime stats or, um, you know, how many people are speeding, you know, is, is it yeah. is it sort of a well, change I mean, in the I mean, even just what you just what you said is just how complicated it is. It's like mm. what do and going so, I mean, I'm sort of probably one of the first people that really started getting into this place measurement um, and really saying we need to measure what matters. We need to be able to put a sort of um, targets and benchmarks against the things that, uh, we're saying that we're setting out to achieve. So the place school data is being used by a lot of councils already saying, okay, this is what the community says. It's being integrated into strategic planning. However, there's lots of different things going, we still got to get electricity to every mm. house. And there's still, you can't, you know, cause uh, like half of the roads are still local governments versus state governments or, or federal things. So they've got to maintain those. The rubbish has to be collected. You know, what happens when, I mean, gosh, we've seen it, I don't know, if in your areas, but one of the big things that's been happening with the employment 
being so challenging and then with COVID and things that people haven't been able, or councils haven't been able to get as much rubbish collected. Yeah. Mm. And people have got very little um, patience for that kind of systematic failure, yeah. which unfortunately we're going to see more and more often, um, you know, because of uh, extreme weather events or, in this case, the health kind of events. Um, and so kind of they have to choose what's most important mm. and um, they've, they've just got so many things to manage. So I think we're seeing social outcomes and social impact measurement. Obviously, for our clients, that's a really big thing and there's more and more people looking at that, but they still have to do rates, roads and rubbish, yeah. which is kind of mm. core services. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Do, do you find that people engage your services, let's say on a council basis, are the people who are already pretty high on livability um, metric, right? And so they're coming to you and saying, we're already 80 out of 100, let's get to 90, rather than places that, you know, let's say, you know, greenfield estates or fast-growing councils where maybe it's high density, where they are dealing with things like, you know, making sure they can no, get, is, look, is it a real mix? It's pretty, it's pretty mixed. Um, a recent LGA that we did, they had a PX of 56 um, out of 100. And now that's a score that the community itself, a thousand odd people have measured 50 individual attributes to aggregate up to get this overall score. The national average is 68 at the moment. So that's a big gap mm. for them. But, you know, I think going what it also has done is to provide them with a real clear sense of purpose about kind of how to prioritise investment in those attributes that are highly valued but underperforming because they can't do it all. Like if I'm saying I've got 50 but we started off with 865 different attributes of neighbourhood livability, right? And so and that's got, council's got to do all of those. And so we're getting them 50 and in many cases um, government, whether whatever level they're at, doesn't have the resources to do all of those things simultaneously. So by participating in this kind of research, you are actually helping them refine their investment strategy. What should they do first? 856, did you say? Or 865? 865 attributes was in the long list when we started researching how to develop this tool. Wow, that I can't even imagine. And so did you use AI to find those 865 or did you use AI to refine them or did you not use AI? We used HI. <laughs> Human <laughs> intelligence. Did I just make that up? I um, love it. <laughs> uh, we uh, worked with a panel of Australians from all kind of works of life, um, all climates, to refine those mm. things, to aggregate them. There were some things where we could go, okay, these are universally valued um, uh, and so we can aggregate that into one attribute. So around education, so education is one attribute, but childcare is separate, mm. um, mainly because going people who care about local education, they care about it depending on what their life stage yeah, is. Sure. So mm. if you've got children like under thing, you want primary school, tertiary, etc. 
Um, so, yes, that process took about a year. So we um, are one of the, well, the only tool I know of globally that actually has gone through a one-year university peer review before we went out and started telling people <laughs> stuff to do. And wow. I mean, what's, so what's some of the highest, you know, suburbs, I guess? You know, when you said PX score of 60, for example, like what are some of, and like surprising ones as well? I mean, you might think it's the traditional sort of, the blue chip sort of inner-ring suburbs that have everything and really established, but you might find it some pockets in, you know, middle and outer suburbs and regional areas that just really, you know, get best better bang for buck, I guess. I know, Chris, you're imagining that I have instant insights into 60,000 yep. different yep. data sets yep. that I've got there. No, but, just reel it off the top of your head. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what, going normally I can I have a few different things. But look, I was doing a project recently um, that I'm thinking about was in Western yep. Sydney. And so we were looking at the whole of Western Sydney and then we were looking at one of the LGAs and then we were looking at a yep. suburb within the LGA. And so at the LGA level, it was about 10 points lower than the Western Sydney average. Now, that's problematic because it's like going, okay, you want to create this new environment, but why would people move if it's better yeah. over there? What yeah, are you exactly. going to do? But the individual suburb inside of this LGA was actually outperforming Western Sydney. Yep. Wow. And so hmm. then it was like going, oh, okay, well, what's the things that the people in Western Sydney that they could really find in this particular suburb that really would talk to the things that, they, that matters? And who are the groups in Western Sydney that have got a high value of those? So kind of it's quite like for me it's about activating the data as well. It's not just I don't want to if you spend your time, which I'm assuming you will next year for the next livability yep. census, going that my promise to you is that 15 minutes of your time is going to influence hundreds if not thousands of decisions. So I want to stop this thing of another engagement, another engagement, another engagement. Mm -hmm. um, but back to the question of kind of what's good and what's bad, it's different for different people as well. So I might have a neighbourhood that's got 76 for under 25-year-olds, but for families mm. it's 62. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Right? Like because it doesn't have playgrounds, it doesn't have good parks, yeah. It does, there's too many vehicles coming past, it's loud at yeah. night time, you know, so there's all these different things. And then I might have another um, place that's fantastic for those people born in China but not very good for those people born in India, Yeah. Mm. right? And that's kind of what we're trying to get to is that each human is completely different. We've just got to find a way to see what you're thinking and how it feels for you because if I just talk to each one of you, I'm going to put my bias on it as mm. well. You, Chris, you tell me you're an ideal thing. I can't help but go. I'm only picking out some of the things that you say. Yeah. And Veronica, you tell me the things that are annoying mm. to you and I'm going to go, oh, gosh, she's crazy about that one. I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to write that <laughs> one down. You know, it can't possibly be that important. And that's been one of the problems with traditional engagement. Like even though the people are amazing and, you know, I've got amazing colleagues, it has got lots of fundamental flaws. First you've got to turn up, you know, then you've got to kind of somehow translate your opinions into some kind of tool for making decisions. And do, you, do you find it? What, what's your background? How did you get into this? Um, my background's uh, my undergraduate was in architecture, and then I did a master's in social science, environment, and planning. Um, but no, n never in the, my wildest dreams that I did I think I would have a tech startup. <laughs> like, and the funny thing is, when I started it, I was like, I can remember having conversations with a number of people going, "Oh, it'll be about ten percent more work." 
um, than what I'm currently doing. Um, and within 18 months, I had basically had to not close my first business, but turn it into place partners is we just are very, very picky and we do maybe three or four projects a year and place score had completely taken over. Wow. And now I've got people with weird technical things and black screens and red text and looks like I'm on a spaceship, <laughs> which I love, right? Like that was awesome too. Good good planning. I mean, I, I like the whole stories of where, you know, councils have tried something and it's really worked and um, and I guess it's really just, in, you know, they, they keep it there. You know, they, they went that outside dining, really worked. That's really improved the suburb. Or we put that new path in and create a whole other accessibility to the suburb, et cetera. So if you've got sort of some examples of like some shorter and really long-term things, just, you know, where, you know, just why it's so important for us to engage in our communities because, you know, small changes can make big differences to a lot of people. And I, I think that's it's always interesting to sort of see how suburbs are getting better. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole nature of trialling things is really fantastic mm. and it's a good way to take the community on a journey. So, you know, we see things like pop-up cycleways um, of colourful pedestrian yeah. crossings to encourage people uh, to do it, of verge planting um, programs. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the city around laneways being taken over at the moment, yeah. which are really wonderful. Um, uh, there is um, a lot of programs run by local and stuff, so not everything has to be physical as mm. well, which I think, you know, we sometimes think, oh, we'll just have to build it and it'll fix it. But a lot of the transformation comes from the soft infrastructure, the way that we relate, the way we purchase. So if you want a great main street with places to go at dinner, you actually have to walk down the street and go and buy food yeah. from them and not yeah. buy it through the yeah. machine, which takes 30%. Yeah. So um, there's only three times that I've ever purchased off a food app, and that was when I was sick with, you know, the dreaded. Um, <laughs> and I do that for a mm. reason. Because me being out on the street makes other people feel safe. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I provide, you know, like I'm a stronger, more mature woman or whatever. I can be a little bit like that bad behaviour gentleman or girls or whatever it is. Um, I am. Uh, I never buy less than, I mean, I always bought, buy something in addition to what I set out to. And so pedestrians are the best for local economies. There's, again, heaps and heaps of evidence that going people coming in cars spend the least amount mm. of money. Hmm. Um, whereas the people walking, cycling, or catching public transport do more because you've got more incidental stops. Why hmm. do you think casinos and shopping centres have got so far away from the car? You know, and we forget that in there. Um, so anything that does that, I think that supports kind of people being out and connected. Um, trialing things in the evenings of kind of like maybe getting five businesses to try a Friday night, late night thing just to say okay after you finish work come and hang out in town um a road closure mm. there's sort of things like better blocks and um we did a project just in Nara recently um with a big a, a, quite a substantial sort of thing we're kind of reducing a road like it's called a road diet so i think like halving the amount of space that was for the private vehicle and increasing the space that was for the humans and putting some beautiful wood sculptures in there that are sort of Instagrammable but also playable mm. and, you know, gorgeous, uh, you know, trees and lighting and shelter and a book um, share yep. library, you know, just things to say, oh, okay, you are welcome to come and hang out here. Like, um, and there's lots of things. Uh, Street Libraries Australia, I'm on the board of, yeah. so pitch that. You can just buy one and stick one up in your front yard, save trees from 
um, so books from going into landfill and potentially make a friend. I love those. Yeah, good. I'm surprised at how many I've used them. I've, I've recycled books all the time. Yeah, they're definitely, I mean, they're, but they're those sort of things and people go, oh, okay, and some, some councils don't allow them. They're not legal to be, you know, installed. You might need to get a yeah. DA. So like, oh, that's I mean, an obstruction, isn't it? God. So yeah. yeah, so I think kind of like if you're trying to talk, if you're looking in a in a neighbourhood to buy purchase, I'd be looking at how much flexibility there is around some of this stuff to personalise your neighbourhood. Um, and if everyone is completely, I mean, obviously if it's brand new, there may not be so much diversity, but that self-expression will tell you about the community as well. Yep. Is how confident are they? Are they likely to be connecting with other mm. people? Because if everyone's hiding behind the ball, then, mm. you know, they may not be the, you know, and you are looking for a sense of community and people to connect with, um, then, you know, I'd be, yeah, I'd be looking for that as markers yeah. of saying how much are people expressing themselves to the front. Such an interesting one. I, I remember a few years back we actually had two clients um, each had moved to um, a, I'll say it, the Sutherland Shire. Um, I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, so it's a you know great place to have a big block of land and all the rest of it. But both of these couples, one was living in an apartment in Coogee with, with a small child and the other one was living in Roselle with a small child, and they moved to the Shire each independently of each other, thinking that that's where you go when you have small children. And each of them had the same story, as different suburbs, but they both said, we didn't meet anybody because we're so used to meeting people in the local park um, because you don't have a big backyard that you have to go to the local park um, to give your kids a bit of outdoors um, time and then you do meet other people. But when we went there, we realised everybody's got their own backyard and so therefore nobody needs to go to the park. And and they yeah, both turned around and actually moved back to the inner, <laughs> in the inner suburbs. I love that, yeah. I think yeah. that's exactly kind of uh, is the sort of stories that actually people talk about and are saying, well, how, and it's very hard to actually see that culture of that place because mm. that is culture. Like, you know, people, it's not yeah. just about uh, different countries. It's like how you behave, like how the community behaves. And if our culture is to be inside and in our backyards, then you're less likely mm. yeah, to meet people. And if you're new, then that could be really challenging. Um, and if you don't realise, until you get there, you don't realise the signs are no small pocket parks, as you call them. There's no pocket parks, you know. <laughs> well, not having I lots of people even... walking around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like so there's some markers of good public domain, like things like so you want people in groups, you ideally want multi-generational groups yeah. mm. um, and people with small children. So those things kind of for me, like from a placemaker's perspective, when I want to transition to place, I'm going to be counting people and looking how they're behaving. And if I don't have those things, then it could mean that it's less safe. It probably if there's no children, it means that there's not clean bathrooms or that the parents don't yeah. feel that. Um, if they don't have that, you're not going to be a great place. If you're thinking about setting up a cafe, don't do that because the people aren't going to come if they can't take their kids mm. to the loo. Um, if you don't have the multi-generational, then kind of you also might be thinking kind of like, well, what is, is it too homogenous in terms of the social structure? Um, is this going to be a good place to age in place mm. or is it only designed for a particular group? Um, or if one group's really dominating and that doesn't matter who it is. I remember I went, I was doing a project and when we came back, we were like 75% of the users of the public domain in town are men. And they were like, that can't be possible. 
And we're like, well, yeah, firstly, I mean, there was four women on the team and I can tell you we, it really is possible, but you guys are men and you don't notice. Um, and also <laughs> yes. that there were many people from different um, ethnic backgrounds who actually didn't really like the fact that we were women, single women in the public domain that were unchaperoned. Um, and they were wondering why people had stopped coming shopping there and were going to the mm. Westfield. And it was like, there's some real stuff going on here and here are the numbers to prove it. Um, and so for that, it was really working with the traders um, and with the local government agencies to work out how do we create an overt sense of welcome to both genders. Um, and that, you know, that, that takes a lot of work. Um, mm. especially if people don't believe you. Like I'm like, no, here's the data. <laughs> like We've collected on every street at different times of the day and on the weekend and this is pretty much consistent. It's not uh, not representative of your actual demographics. Are you finding that councils across the country, though, are, are running it pretty tight ship, you know, like they, there's, you know, they've got to do the waste, they've got to do the roads, they've got to do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all these great ideas that you can put in front of them, but the funds to actually go and action them is really, you know, tight at a lot of councils. And, you know, I guess people are upset about paying any rate increase. Well, you know, you can't have both best of both worlds, right? You can't have this amazing community without paying higher rates. And so have you seen any councils that have got the community to increase their rates to increase their livability and, and sort of initiatives like that where it's super super hard and you're 100 percent right so again just another thing that you might be looking out for is um you want a good proportion of humans to the amount of public yep. domain so there's some councils which have got like 200,000 hectares of land to manage and a population of only 45,000 mm. people of which only 20,000 of those are ratepayers now do mm. not go there expecting the level of service in the yeah. city of sydney yeah Mm. Um, do not call them and complain every day about why the rubbish isn't being picked up three times yeah. a week because it's just not going yeah. to um, and why it takes, you know, six months for the road to get mm. uh, fixed. So mm. I think it's about also managing those expectations um, and I think councils are perhaps not very good at communicating that really simple maths of kind of going, this is how many humans we've got who pay and this is how much stuff we've got to look yeah. after. Um, so certainly some of the regional councils, I think, are really yeah. struggling with the level of service, the expectations from yeah. the community, um, mm. especially with the, the quite big yeah, tree change. The, the, and, the city, um, the city, change. city uh, yeah. people moving there and thinking, why isn't this the same? And we want a better standards and it's going to take time for these councils. This and well, on it's that not about too. time. It's yeah, just not yeah, going to right. happen. Because <laughs> the thing is, is it going like, not only that, like, so my family, we grew up in Winchicarabie Shire. Um, and so they've been quite, we've had massive bushfires and now we've had really big floods. And half of my family lived down dirt roads, which they chose mm. to do. Um, and, you know, then they forget and then they're like, oh, God, there's been potholes and things. And I'm like, literally, you picked a road that's like <laughs> 10 kilometres long and has four houses on it. So just count up your rates and then work out how often you think they should fix your road. Like, you know, and it's sort of bringing that down and going, okay, this is the choice you make. You want that more land. You want to be more, you know, connected to nature. Then you will have not the same level of service and amenities. If people don't often, you know, work through those trade-offs. But the other thing about that's been hitting regional uh, areas is this, you know, a lot. 
well, rental shortage, but also quite a, an uptake in Airbnb. So you've got, um, what are, I was reading uh, recently about some of the South Coast councils mm. and they're, they're concerned about the fact that they've got these empty houses and then that's actually creating a cultural hole or a yep. community hole. Um, and now they're starting to look at things like increasing the rates for empty houses. And so I guess that's one way to get more money in the coffers, but it doesn't really solve the, the, the community whole problem. There is probably a term for that that I've forgotten what it is. You've been doing much work in that space. No, but it's, look, housing affordability, housing availability, it's probably the biggest outside of sustainability is like the question that every planner is trying to resolve. Mm. Um, and we are a very market-led approach here where government doesn't have a lot of power to control the market and there's been lots of different things that have been trialled. Um, I think going internationally we're seeing more examples of this. So like Manhattan's one of probably the oldest ones about rent control, buildings, etc., mm. that ensure that there's sort of affordable mm. housing that's, uh, you know, allow uh, integrated into some of the most expensive areas. Um, Barcelona I think has now restricted mm. airbnbs um quite cons- uh, there's you have to get a yeah. special license to have it and it's quite expensive and the onus is on the owner um you can't just airbnb at, you know anything um and that is about housing supply for the for the locals and people who mm. want to live there permanently so whether or not we can kind of we've got those legal mechanisms is really determined by sort of bigger things that i don't really know um, but mm-hmm. I know, you know, if a place is attractive and because of this inequity between the wealthiest and mm-hmm. those people who don't have as much cash flow, um, that you will always have this, right? So you'll always have people that can have two houses or three houses and can then go away to a fourth house um, and that can afford to leave these properties untenanted. Um, I think Melbourne was looking at some land tax kind of uh, things. I'm not sure where they got with that as well. Um, I just think, oh, you know, if you do happen to have that, um, I have a, a rental property. Um, it was my first property I bought as a young woman um, who's just started, you know, working and I was very lucky to get something very affordable. Um, but, you know, part of my thing is that I, I, I always rent it. It's in the cross, it's near a hospital, you know, and not everyone has the choice to do that. I could definitely get more money doing other things, but because that's my values mm. that I want mm. um, single people to be able to ha- be housed proximate to transport, to hospitals like service workers, key workers, etc. That that I can do that and I choose to do that. Um, and I guess it's something that every mm. investor can think about is like, mm. how you know, what's your contribution to the city yep. as well? Like you're still going to pay your mortgage yep. off, right? Yeah. I think I'm going to do oh, that. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So, I mean, I think um, you've done it. You do a livability sort of census. I think it would be awesome for our um, listeners to get involved. When's the sort of next one coming up? And, you know, have you got the 2022 results yet? And, and sort of what's happening there? So we do the census every okay. two years. So one was in 2021 and the next one is in 2022. Um, and certainly uh, if you go to placescore.org, then you will see if there once that live link has been there and, and maybe I'll get back in contact with you guys and you can remind people yeah. next year. Um, it is a really good way to make sure that your voice is heard. It's different from the ABS census, which just counts you and tells you mm. how old you are and kind of what you do. This is about what matters um, and how things are impacting you. So it's a better tool for helping governments make Is there decisions. an easy way to sort of engage with your council? Like, is there a certain... <laughs> 
like people wouldn't even know where to start with those sort of things. Like what should you be, you know, if you care about these things, it's going to be where you're going to live long term and you want to contribute back and, and grow the, the community. Where would you where would you start, I guess? Um, I think going like most communities have a lot of established groups. Some of them might not be to your <laughs> fancy, but go probably have a look around. Like I know there's sort of groups in my neighbourhood that might do something where you can just come up and bring food or you can just help one day. Yeah. You might not be a committee kind of person. You might be a once-in-a-while kind of person. Find something that suits you. Um, other people really like that longer-term project and want to be the secretary or the treasurer or yeah. something like that. Um um, but go, so uh, if you go onto your council's website, there will usually be a thing saying community groups and um, it will have a whole big list there and you can kind of see it. And there's probably one of everything, like there's community gardens, there's play groups, there's friends of the library, there's heritage, um, there's land care. There's so many groups um, that you can participate in, many of them that are quite happy for you to come by yourself or with your family for yeah. one weekend to do something or, you know, to participate um, over a longer period of time. Especially if you're retired and you haven't got to go to work. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, if you're new absolutely. to an area, what a great way to actually get yourself yeah, involved. Yeah, really great way to connect to people who actually mm. do care, right? So you're going to – people who mm. volunteer are – incredible um and there is a bit of an issue nationally i was speaking to someone from st vincent de paul the other day with people just being a little bit overcooked mm. and exhausted um and so i mean just as there is with donating blood but with volunteerism as well is really right. reduced so it might be your local sports mm. club might need someone to referee on a saturday morning um so something that's manageable for you but yeah it was hugely fulfilling and actually essential for the well-being of a community mm. that we aren't the, and the i can promise you government cannot do it alone and they've never been expected to there's always been this mm. huge amount of local community members who have given a huge you know given back hours and hours and hours of their time well it's up to individuals as well it's like you know one thing that really bothered me when we all started wearing face masks is how many of i saw on the ground and every time i walk out walking i'm thinking this is disgusting. So I went and bought myself one of those those long-handed oh, rubbish picker-up thingies. <laughs> yeah, because I thought, well, I'm whinging about it and I'm out walking, you know, I should do something about it. It's, it's a small yeah. impact. But, you know, I just think that if we all had an approach, you know, that said, right, well, this is my area and, and I contribute to it in my way, then I think that that's something we should all do one step from where you are veronica is just to put something on your facebook group is saying how about this weekend everyone try and pick up 30 masks and even if only <laughs> six people do it right that's still yeah amazing and those people will remember you as well and so they're the ones that if you call and say i need help does anyone have a ladder you're they're the you know they're going to go oh we'll help veronica like so it all does come around as well so yeah all awesome. in now, we're going to put the link to uh, your livability census in the show notes so people can actually download the 2021 State of Place report, but also they can register as an early bird EOI for the 2023 one. So we'll whack that in there. But do you have, before we wrap up, do you have a um, an example of a property Dumbo for us? Oh, God, no, I think I lived in the, the Cross and I had a similar thing where there's the most beautiful trees, I think they are, but there's a whole lot of people who mm. don't like a particular type of tree. 
and um, there'd been all this construction going on and I'd actually said to these guys, I'm like, look, can you be careful? You keep hitting the trees. And so finally, yes, they did knock down one of the the, um, the, the arms, the limbs. limbs. Um, and then within, you know, 24 hours, the tree was completely gone. I mean, a 150-year-old wow. tree. And I am beside myself because it is literally outside of my bedroom and it was like this, I was full canopy. It was so oh, no. beautiful. Um, and, yeah, so when I was calling them saying, you know, well, you're going to replace it and, you know, like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, well, it has to be a mature tree because I've done heaps and heaps of projects and if the tree isn't like three to four years old, like it won't survive in these heavy traffic conditions because it's not like 150 years ago when they were yeah, actually right. planted mm. and they had all this freedom to grow, right? But, yeah, so finally, like, this tree arrived and it was, you know, probably two and a half metres tall, but three <laughs> years later it was still two yeah. and a half metres tall because oh. in, when you're replacing trees in, in those kinds of conditions, it's a, you know, they, that's not, they used to get all this sunlight right, and air right, and they didn't okay, have car yeah. pollution mm. and stuff, so they made the first five years, were like, Phew, right, and then they're all established and they can be more resilient. So, yeah, it's... Um, I'm like, never cut a tree down. I'd actually kind of, I'm, no, I won't say that. <laughs> um, I don't know what mistakes there are. I mean, look, I've seen projects kind of like there's one in the city, you know, and it happens a lot with public spaces that people are like, oh, it, you know, it didn't work, the design. And they've spent, you know, $10 million building this new public space. And the one that I was thinking about in the city kind of, you know, it was this huge, big, empty space and people design public spaces for the flood condition, not for the everyday condition, meaning peak people. Mm. So it was like the once every five years they have a 1,000 people there for a street yeah. festival or something. And so it's just massive. And But when they're gone, it's just this huge, big concrete, like, you Nothing. know, nothingness. <laughs> And they don't really do any research as to why it didn't work. And so, yeah, I can remember going, I moved to Melbourne and this public space had been built and it was a big unveiling and I was like, oh, like who would ever want to go and sit in that space? Like, going, it like literally I'm like want to say to the designers, can you please like come and tell me where you would sit? And I have asked that to people before and they've been like, oh, but it's not for me. And I'm like. It's a public space in the middle of a capital city. How could it not be for you? It's like, so anyhow, they, three years later, I moved back to Sydney and I see that it's under construction again. And I'm not, no joke, like they pull the hoardings down and it's exactly the same space. I'm like, going, I'm like, what have you done? <laughs> what did done? they do? <laughs> they put like two planters and a seat kind of at the back of it, but fundamentally, again, leaving it for this big empty space, which doesn't have any shelter. They're continually having to, to drag kind of all mm. this equipment in there. Um, so I don't know. I'm going to call that a dumbo. Is it? Is That's it? Is yeah. definite dumbo. dumbo. Yeah, that qualifies. Awesome. Oh, Thank dear. you so much for today, Kylie. I think it's <laughs> awesome for our listeners just to really, I mean, kind of keep going down this journey i think it's something that just compounds over years the more you sort of engage with your community and walk around and things you like and don't like and um and when you're investing is to start to think well what is that suburb and what's it offering to the people and different generations and different demographics and families etc so i think it's, um, it's a really interesting conversation thanks for coming on absolute pleasure Cheers, guys thank, thank you. you for having me if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, 
my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. Yeah.